And no matter where you are in parenting, maybe your grandparents or great-grandparents, some of the principles that we'll be discussing will be applicable for everybody. So please, I'm really excited about this. What if parenting is not just about you and your parents or about you and your kids? What if parenting is really about you and your God? And that's what it boils down to. God-centered parenting and children seeing that parents are trying to bring these children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's also good to look at our assembly and see uh, Brendan and Rebecca Dunlap with us today. They worshiped with us for a number of years, very faithful. Uh, they are here, and please make it a point to greet them and let them know how glad you are to see them. It's super happy with us today. If we were to summarize in one word all that God does in Jesus to make our salvation possible, it would be hard to find a better word than grace. Because grace initiated by God reminds us that we were undeserving. And that grace is undeserved, that it is ill-deserved, and that it's unrepayable. How thankful we should be for God's grace. The response of man to what God has done to save Now, when you think about faith and man's response to what God has done to make salvation possible in Jesus, here's four words I'd like for you to remember. The first word, conviction. Conviction. That means you really feel strongly about something. You're convicted. Conviction. Second word. Disposition. Some people have pleasant dispositions. 
some, eh, not so much. But when we're talking about faith, faith is a matter of conviction. It's a matter of disposition. Third word, submission. When you look at what the Bible says about faith, faith is a matter of what? Conviction. It is a matter of disposition, and it's a matter of submission. Fourth, faith is a matter of elation. Elation. Sometimes we'll say, I, I was elated by this. It means overjoyed. I, I just bubbled with, with joy and happiness. Faith is a matter of elation. Now let me show you what I mean. Faith is conviction because it is grounded in the evidence of the Word of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, a conviction or evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. He that would come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek after him. Faith is a matter of conviction. We have a content to our faith that is based on evidence. Conviction. Then that word disposition. We not only believe have a belief that has content, we have a belief that's in a person. The disposition to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The disposition of personal commitment to be all in in trusting Him. And so we not only believe that and there's content and there's evidence we believe in a person who is real and concerning whom we need to have a personal commitment and be all in. Faith is like that, biblically. That third word, submission. If faith in, involves conviction of evidence from the Word of God and a personal commitment to the Son of God, Jesus... It also involves submission and obedience to the will of God. Or it's not the type of faith the Bible talks about. Submission to the will of God. And it's for this reason that preachers among us for years have rightly said, faith without works is dead, James 2, 14 and following. By going to Hebrews 11 and seeing the great men and women of faith in that chapter, their faith acted, submitted to the will of God, and so should ours, if it's going to please God. That fourth word, elation. Whalen mentioned this when he spoke of the Lord's Supper and he looked at Hebrews 12 and who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. There is a sense of joy and elation that comes by being in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always.
again I say rejoice. Paul's words, of course, in Philippians 4 and verse 4. It is amazing how often Jesus speaks of faith. And when he does, he is often referring to degrees of faith. In other words, there's various points on the faith spectrum where all of us will find ourselves. And what I'd like to do this morning is to show you how Jesus spoke of little faith and how Jesus spoke of great faith. And then for each one, I would like to look at this. Two main points, little faith, great faith. But under each one, two sub-points if you want to think that way. When Jesus spoke of little faith, and characteristics of little faith. When Jesus spoke of great faith, characteristics of great faith. I think that this type of approach, looking at Jesus and how he spoke of little faith and great faith, will help us determine where we often are on the spectrum of faith. So let's look. And we'll be just using the Gospel of Matthew in our study this morning. When Jesus spoke of little faith, occasions when he mentioned little faith, and then we'll look at characteristics of it. Turn to Matthew 6 and verse 30. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. Jesus spoke of little faith. If God so clothes the ground with the flowers and the grass, how much more a lesser or greater argument will he clothe you? O you of little faith. Now, it's really important to look at this. Miss Mickey, this is in a whole context about worry. And Jesus says, worry will cause us to have little faith. Or maybe little faith will cause us to worry. There's a relationship, isn't there? Three times in Matthew 6, 19-34, Jesus says in this sermon, Do not worry. Do not be anxious. But it's still awfully hard to get over that idea of worry, isn't it? Worry may be a reflection of a lack of trust. same context as it deals with worry is also dealing with priorities or what we treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Matthew 6 and verse 21. I'd like to be a person of greater faith because worry too often gnaws on me. Doesn't he? Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26. This is the second of four occasions in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus speaks of little faith. And Brother Lynn Mayfield read it for us in our scripture reading. The context has to do with Jesus and the apostles on a boat. And a storm comes along. And the apostles, remember, we were talking about some pretty experienced fishermen being among them. They are worried about the severity of the storm. And they go to Jesus who's fast asleep. Imagine being that tired that you can sleep during the storm. Do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew 8, 26. Oh, you of little faith is used in connection with fear. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? <coughs> oh, Mike, what are you saying? I'm saying the greater faith in Jesus will take care of our worries. I'm saying the greater faith in Jesus will take care of our fears. You ever afraid? Afraid of death, afraid of losing loved ones, afraid of, of maybe your livelihood changing, your world being rocked. I suspect that if there are times we all have such fears. Trusting in Jesus helps us deal with our worries, helps us deal with our Turn to Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse 31. And what I find so striking, so significant, friends, is that every time Jesus speaks of little faith, he is doing it in a context when, hey, maybe there were people that could have said, I, I, I feel like I've got a right. Not every Jewish family knew where their next meal would be coming from, and they might worry. The apostles are afraid because they've seen a lot of storms, those that were fishermen anyway, and being out on the boat in this one did not make them have a lot of confidence. They were afraid. Matthew 14.31 It's interesting how a little time has elapsed. And in Matthew 8... Jesus is in the boat with the apostles, but he's asleep. And in Matthew 14, he tells the disciples to get into the boat. And he goes off to pray. And another storm comes. Interesting fact of scripture, storms come. 
And they see Jesus this time walking on the water. Think about that one, lady. In a storm that they're going through, they see the Lord walking on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out and meet you. And the Lord doesn't discourage that. And Peter gets out of the boat. And as long as he focuses on Jesus, it seems as though he is doing the impossible. He's walking. And then he notices the circumstances yet again. And he begins to sing. And he cries out to Jesus and the Lord extends his hand. And you know what the Lord says? Why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. Matthew 16. Sometimes our faith takes a hit because doubt looms so large within us. That's what happened to Peter in this occasion. Look at Matthew 16, 1-8. In Matthew 16, 1-8, Jesus speaks of a little faith, verse 8. And he speaks of it in connection to human reasoning. Human reasoning. He had said earlier in the chapter, the first four verses, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the, the apostles are worrying about not having any bread. It's amazing that they would worry about that. Yet again, because he's already fed the 5,000, he's fed the 4,000. <coughs> but before we point the finger of accusation against them too strongly, how often have we, due to human reasoning, lacked trust in God? We've forgotten what he has done in the past. And we're thinking only about the present. And with our human reasoning being limited, we fail to think about an all-knowing, ever-caring God enough. Those are the four occasions when Jesus spoke of little faith. Now let me give you the characteristics of little faith. Little faith is often found when more should have been expected. Little faith is often found when more should have been expected by God. The Sermon on the Mount is to the people of God, Israel. Then you look at the other accounts and in their words either to Peter or to all of the apostles. They had seen things that no one else had ever seen. 
They had heard words that no one else had ever been privileged to hear as far as fullness and experience. Little faith is often found in more should have been expected. Luke 16, 10-13 To whom much is given, much is required. Little faith often associates trust with signs. In Matthew 16, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees that are wanting Jesus to perform some sign. And Jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Peter, I guess, is wanting a sign in Matthew 14. However sincerely, if it's you, let me come out and be with you. I get it in a way. I think I'd rather be with Jesus on the water than with the other guys on the boat. How about you? Now, sometimes we want a sign. Isn't a rainbow a sign and a promise from God? Amen. Isn't the promise of God enough? Sometimes it's not for those of us who have little faith and we want more. We want a sign. Great faith is content with the promise and the word of God. Third, little faith lets circumstances look big. Bigger than they really are. Two storms and a discussion about bread or leaven in Matthew 16. Little faith. We always tend to think our circumstances are so big that they are the exception to what God has already said. Trust me. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Little faith often focuses on self. Hear me, Brother Steve? Little faith will do that. We'll focus so much on ourselves and what we're going through. We will not focus clearly on who our God is and what he has gone through for us. Now we're ready to look at great faith. Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus refers to great faith. The first account is Matthew 8 verses 5 through 13. And it's a centurion. Now stop and think about that. We're talking about a Gentile as opposed to Jews where Jesus was primarily ministering. We're talking about a Roman centurion as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious people among the Jews who should have freely embraced Jesus and 
his mission as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But this centurion comes to Jesus, and if you compare Matthew 8 to its parallel, Luke 7, 1 through 10, he sends some of the religious leaders of the Jews. He doesn't go himself. He sends some people on his behalf. They are coming to Jesus on behalf of this centurion. And their statement about him is remarkable when you think about a Roman centurion. They say about him, he is worthy and he loves our God and he helped build a synagogue. That's what the leaders of the Jews who come say about the centurion. When you look at what the centurion says, notice he's not coming on behalf of himself. He's not sent these leaders on behalf of himself. He's sent them. He's asking something of Jesus on behalf of a much-loved servant who is paralyzed. The King James has palsy, I believe. Paralyzed servant. Maybe this servant had gotten hurt in, in serving the centurion. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But notice these words. And I want you to mark them in your Bible. Because the word that I want you to, uh, to, to circle first is unworthy. I am unworthy for you to even come to my house. He shows profound humility. That wouldn't have been so easily found among Roman centurions because they were somebody. But he shows humility. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. The next word is authority. I too am a man of authority. And I know that you are one who has authority. And what he's saying in this context is this. Just as I, as a centurion, have the authority to command those who are under me. I know, I know the centurion's saying that you have authority to command a sickness to come out of my servant. That you have that kind of authority next. Not only is there humility and authority There is the word veracity, truth. Just say the word. Just say the word. And I know that it's true that my servant will be healed. And the text, the text says Jesus marveled. 
think about that because the fact that the Son of God would marvel is in itself a marvel. I have not found so great a faith. No, not in all Israel. It is a compliment and a rebuke simultaneously. A compliment that a Roman centurion would have great faith and a rebuke because it might have been expected in Israel, but it's certainly less so in this centurion. Now, the second occasion, Matthew 15, 21-28. Great faith. And it is especially in verse 28 where we see the statement, great is your faith. If the centurion came to Jesus through others on behalf of a servant who was paralyzed and for whom he cared deeply, in this case, the Canaanite woman, the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman, in other words, she's not Jewish. Jesus was in Capernaum earlier in Matthew 8 with the centurion, but now he's in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And it's here that this woman comes to him and says to him, Have mercy on me, O son of David. She has a daughter who's quite young, who is demonized, possessed of a demon. And the Lord's initial response to her might sound a little abrupt, but you'll understand before the story's over. He says, it's not appropriate to take what belongs to the table of God's people and give it to the dogs. This woman would not be stopped. And much like the centurion shows her own humility and she says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs could eat the crumbs off the master's table. And it is in that context that the Lord says your daughter will be healed because great is your faith. In both of these cases Jesus healed from long distance, Adam. He wasn't there. He didn't have to be. But in both cases of great faith, whether we're talking about Matthew 8 or here in this chapter, the words says the word. Now what are characteristics of great faith? Great faith is often found 
where it is least expected. A friend of mine passed away yesterday, who was about 94. When Cherie and I were quite young, we preached for the church that he and his wife and family attended. He served the congregation in many ways, song leader, elder, class teacher. I remember preaching many sermons with him on the front row, hanging on every word from a young preacher, taking it in as if he Great faith is often found where it's least expected. In a little country congregation of about 140, I saw great faith. Now, Alan, I'd have expected it in a Johnny Ramsey. I would have expected it in a George Bailey. But I wouldn't have expected it from a guy who was a member of a congregation of 140 in a little town in East Texas. Probably among the very finest, no probably, among the very finest men that I've ever known. Great faith. You talk about joy. That guy, you could hear him laughing throughout the whole county when he got to it. was the kind of laughter, you know, just side slapping, slide split, loud. Great faith where it might not have really been expected. Another characteristic of great faith is this. Great faith is humbly persistent despite all obstacles. Didn't this woman have to deal with some obstacles? She was going to have to swallow her pride to even go to Jesus. She's going to be discouraged, it seems, by others. And, and Jesus doesn't sound all of that positive about responding initially, does he? But she shows the humility and the greatness of her faith by her persistent. Her persistent humility. And here's what I love most of all about great faith. Great faith delights Jesus. When the Lord looks down at you, Milton, when the Lord looks down at you, does he smile? I'm delighted at that, that, that construction man's face. Brother Reams, when the Lord looks down at you, does he smile and say, I'm delighted at that former elder, former oil patch guy, constantly reading and studying, fellow. I am I'm delighted at his faith. Brother Clay, when the Lord looks at you, years of preaching and helping people, you and your wife, does he smile and say, I I I know that there's a man of great faith. Shorty Ivanhoe, back on the back row, when he looks at you, 
And He thinks about you and your life with Sherry. And He thinks about you and your kids. And He thinks about you and your grandkids. And He thinks about you and your job. Is He delighted in your faith? When He looks at my vessel, is He delighted? Or does He sometimes shake His head? And yet with care and love say, Oh you of little faith, you have allowed worry, you have allowed fear, you have allowed doubt, and you have allowed human reasoning to keep you from trusting in me. Look at Luke 17 and verse 5. It's a great prayer. It consists of only a few words. Lord, increase our faith. Amen, church. Amen. Lord, increase our faith. Faith will cause someone to respond to the grace of Jesus in making salvation possible. One will respond by believing in their heart Jesus is God's Son and He can see me through not just my worry and doubt, not just my fear and human reasoning. He can see me through this life with all of its struggles, but He can help me be victorious over sin. I believe that he can. I believe he did that at the cross. Belief, repentance, a change of direction due to a change of heart. <clears throat> Jesus said, except you believe that I am here, you will perish. John 8, 24. Belief, repentance, and acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he is the Lord and Savior. I make a personal commitment to that fact. He is Lord and Savior. And then coming to the Lord and responding to His grace initially in faith involves baptism. <clears throat> because it's at the point of baptism we put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. It's at the point of baptism that we die to, to sin and the old man and we arise to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 through 5. When the Lord looks at you, does he see no faith? Mark 4, verse 40. Does he see little faith? Or does he smile at the great faith that he sees? Let us stand and sing.